0: hi this is andrew and this is keynote the daily now tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers hello everybody it is tuesday august the 2nd 2022 we're doing a self-realization day today seems almost coincidental maybe there's some logic in the nature of things. Uh, Earlier today, I did an interview with a a German social scientist, Gerd Ginzeranger, a German psychologist who has a new book out. Uh, He's a theorist of heuristics. He has a new book out called How to Stay Smart in a Smart World. Um, It's all about intelligence and how uh, machines can never mimic our intelligence. Uh, When uh, as an introduction to our conversation with Gerd, I asked him to tell me something about himself, and he explained that in his early 20s, the critical moment in his life was when he had to decide whether to be a musician or a social scientist. He made the decision to become an academic rather than a musician, and that seems to have benefited him, and and our conversation was very much based on that. Coincidentally, my guest today, Jeff Lerner, the author of a really interesting new book, Unlock Your Potential, very much along the theme, I think, of G- gigarenz's uh, argument, um, began life also as a musician. But in contrast with uh, with our German friend, uh, Jeff didn't give up being a musician. Um, And his new book, Unlock Your Potential, is very much a narrative about not just unlocking your potential, yours and mine, but also Jeff's himself. Jeff is joining us, perhaps not inappropriately, from a town in Utah, 90 minutes from Las Vegas. Uh, Ginzinger talked to us from the Baltic coast uh, of Germany, just north of Berlin. So we're going from north of Berlin to just south of las vegas appropriately enough jeff uh welcome tell me a little bit about yourself how did you get from being a musician a pianist to being this world famous coach very successful coach on uh, self-realization and, and and what does your narrative teach us the rest of us
1: well i got from being a musician first of all let me just say thank you for having me Andrew, I'm actually a fan of the show and I'm grateful to be here and I'm grateful to be following this this uh, luminary who I'm I'm excited to hear agrees with me that there's something wonderful and uh, sort of non clonable about human intelligence, no matter how much dystopian thinking we want to, you know, live in these days about computers beating us at our own game or whatnot. Uh, but anyway so i'm grateful to be here as far as how i got from being a musician to a you know an entrepreneur slash social media influencer slash coach slash as of today published author um i i I think i did it as clumsily and awkwardly as possible (laughs) and i say that with some pride um because i like to learn and you can't learn if you don't struggle and i've learned a lot because i've struggled a lot and if i've done anything well it's, it's to discipline myself to not try to make things easier um, just to, or, or to, to only want things to be easier insofar as it's because I'm getting better, not because they're getting lesser, if that makes sense.
0: Um, so, Jeff, let's go back. Uh, according to your Wikitia entry, um, as in your 20s, you worked as a pianist. Uh, you're often asked to perform for wealthy CEOs and company leaders took almost a decade of effort, whatever effort means for you to achieve uh, success. But when you were 29, you finally discovered Internet success. Um, You were half a million dollars in debt and you paid that off. Tell me about your 20s. So what happened? What are the defining moments in this narrative? So uh, I'll start a little before my 20s, because I think the first big
1: defining moment, maybe still to this day, the most defining moment in my life, was voluntarily dropping out of high school my junior year, because every cell in my body was rebelling against what I felt was the track that I was on in the mainstream school system, um, and I've been, you know, on the road less traveled ever since. And, and I always, it, to be honest, you know, today my book is being published. Today is sort of a crown jewel in a story that's been now 27 years since I dropped out of high school. And and I'd be lying if I said that today didn't feel like a certain amount of of vindication or
0: validation. Um, I had let's, this go back, uh, let's go back. even before then, your twenties, to dropping out of high school. Where'd you grow up, Jeff?
1: I grew up in Houston, Texas, which
0: is. I'm also sure where your I parents weren't particularly thrilled with your decision to drop out of high school, were they? Uh, f-
1: yeah, thrilled they were not, but supportive. Believe it or not, they were because, uh, and as a parent now, I understand this. They just wanted me to be happy, and I was so just pathologically unhappy in school, I think that anything to them was better than seeing me continue to be miserable. Um, and so I dropped out and and I'll say that I, I sort of made a deal with them. I said, look, I, I know that, you know, I don't expect you to support me forever. And I also don't expect you to be okay with me careening into a, you know the abyss of self-destruction uh, and, or, and or squandering the the great potential and the great opportunity that you guys have, have gifted me with as successful people that, you know, kind of gave me these opportunities in life. So here's the deal. If you'll let me drop out of high school, I believe that give me a few years, give me the few years that I would have had left in high school and let me apply it to music. And I think I can get good enough to be a self-sustaining musician. And I was not at that time, I was not a serious piano player at all. I was 16 and I basically made a deal. Let me drop out of school and I will practice, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, whatever it takes. And by 18, I promise you won't have to be supporting me whether it's going to college or or playing gigs or whatever, and they 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 took the deal. They they actually helped let me withdraw. They bought me a piano, and I got to work. and And for the last two years of high school, when most kids are partying and taking senior trips and living the life, I was uh, nose to the grindstone teaching myself piano out of you know basically music theory workbooks, 10, 12 hours a day. But by Jeff, 18- uh, last year,
0: I had the. New York Times writer Matt Richtell on the show arguing that most of us are terrified of being creative. He has a new book out about Mm -hmm. it called inspired understanding creativity, a journey through art, science, and the soul. Do you agree with Matt? Are most of us terrified of creativity? And was that something you overcome intuitively perhaps as a rebellious teenager that you weren't willing to be terrified of your own creativity, especially when it comes to playing piano? I think that most people, I, I would
1: expand and, and say, yes, I do fundamentally agree with him. I think, and, and this isn't just a theory, um, you know, I, I used to supplement my income with teaching piano lessons and I, and I had child students and I had adult students. I had child students because I thought I could really shape them and change the course of their life. And I had adult students because um, they helped me pay the bills. The adult students were never, to be honest, they were never terribly fun to teach. And, and I'll give an example of why. I would sit them at a keyboard that had 88 keys and they were all they were all uh, available. They were all freely available. None of them had an X on them. And I would say, just play something, play anything, make something up. And they would act paralyzed. They literally could not physically bring themselves to just hit a note for fear that I would tell them they hit the wrong note, even though I had given them the rule that there were no rules. <laughs> so yes, adults especially are terrified of being creative. But I think it's bigger than that. I, I think it actually goes to our our genetic, our epigenetic, our biological, our evolutionary origins, what we're actually terrified of is solitary self-reliance. We want the sanction of the group or the tribe, and creativity is a fundamental step out into the abyss by oneself, and I think that's
0: actually what, what terrifies at least adults. It doesn't terrify children, in my experience. What about the making of decisions, whether or not one admires Ger- Gingarenza's decision to become an academic rather than a musician? You chose the other route. Is making decisions, Jeff, really important in terms of clearly figuring out the either or and moving forward for better or worse? Because I think Ger- Gingerenz's heuristic theory would suggest that we're never quite sure. We can never determine any decision uh, logically there aren't any correct or incorrect answers to one's life's path. uh
1: yes a thousand percent um i remember reading a very interesting article in harvard business review that uh that was essentially trying to distill what percentage of the relevant information is required to make great decisions or is required by great decision makers to make those decisions and so for their great decision maker assessment, they, they analyzed the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and they they tracked a lot of their historical, pretty pretty large, largely significant decisions they made in the course of managing these very large companies. And they decided, they essentially assessed that the average CEO of a major corporation only needs about 60% of the relevant information to have enough information to make a decision. And that actually there's a point of diminishing returns in trying to get more information beyond that. What you actually end up is paying the opportunity cost of delay when you should have just pulled the trigger at 60%. And so, yes, I think that that ability to trust oneself, which again goes to that fear of creativity, it's the fear of sticking our neck out, solitary self-reliance at the end of the day, taking responsibility. Hey, I don't have all the information and I never will, but I know that the worst thing to do is, to decide, is not to decide. Not, not deciding is deciding to do nothing, right? And so, yes, to, to your question, the uh, the other thing that I'll say about decision-making is if you actually go to the, the origin of the word decision, I, I talk a lot about decisions in my book. It's uh, decadere, it's a Latin term, and it means actually to cut away from. And so the, the key element of decision-making and the way that I'm able to, I think, get pretty confident in making lots of decisions that you have to as an entrepreneur is by getting really clear on what it is you don't want. And you can actually reduce a lot of the The clutter around decision making by simply eliminating everything that is related to what you don't want. In other words, figure out what it is that you're cutting away from and you reduce the set of options from which you need to decide. And then at that point, you just have to make your best gut guess.
0: So put that into your narrative. What were you struggling with in your 20s? What did you learn? What did you go through? that you both put in to unlock your potential in which others can learn who are perhaps struggling with the kinds of things that you struggled with in your twenties and your teens. Sure. So in my teens,
1: again, you know, using that, that sort of negative space assessment formula of like, what is it that I don't want? What I didn't want was to stay on a linear path, continue to do what I was told, take <laughs> on debt, you know, go through the system and get a job. That I just knew I wasn't going to like and have to work. And and at the time I was a little bit of like a cynical teenager because I got bullied a lot as a kid. And I was like, well, geez, if I get a job at some big company, I'm just going to be working with these same people that bullied me, right? I don't want to do that. So it was deciding what I didn't want and going the opposite direction, which meant dropping out and becoming a musician. Then in my twenties, interestingly, I realized that there were a lot of things about the life of a musician that were starting to become what I didn't want, which was this constant toil you know, I wasn't Elton John, I wasn't Billy Joel, uh, I wasn't Harry Connick Jr. It was a constant toil. I was playing, at my peak, I was playing 400 gigs a year, more than one per day, and teaching lessons, and going to school. Even though I dropped out of high school, I was able to get into college on a, on a jazz piano scholarship. But I didn't want that life either. And the thing is, I was, I was in my mid-20s, and I looked around at my peers, who are some of the top working pianists in Houston, and they might be in their 50s, or they might be in their 60s. And in terms of career ascension, they were there really wasn't anywhere to go from where I was. I could basically see this flat plane for the next 30 years of just playing the same gigs for the same money, the same frenetic pace and the same exhaustion and and none of them really looked terribly good for for the journey. I mean, they were pretty pretty worn out people. And so then it became what I didn't want. but I was as you as you saw in the in the biography, I was playing sometimes in the homes of very wealthy, very successful people that seemed to have, some of what i had and what i wanted which was free which was freedom creativity self-determination a lot of choice in their life but they also had money and they also had opportunity and they also had the resources and the tools to have impact in the world on a much larger level than i did and so i started asking them i mean they were hiring me i was invited into their homes and a lot of my musicians as soon as it, or my musician friends as soon as there was a break they would run outside and smoke a cigarette or you know, BS, whatever, you know, kill time until it was time to be back on set. I would venture out into the living room, venture out into the foyer and I would meet the host and I would say, so what is it? I mean, literally, I asked, for example, Bob McNair, uh, who was the owner of the Houston Texans NFL football team back in the early 2000s. And his net worth was like two billion dollars. And I was playing piano in his house and I asked him point blank. And I talk about this in the book. I'm like, so like, how, how does one become a billionaire? And he told me a story straight you know, from the horse's mouth, right? And so I, I started picking all this. I realized that I had this incredible advantage, which was direct FaceTime with billionaires and centimillionaires and CEOs and movers and shakers. And I started piecing together what was initially sort of a philosophy or even just a feeling of what, what would success look like? if operationalized. And then, you know, from there, I realized what they all had in common was they were entrepreneurs and business owners, and I started trying to start my own businesses. And, you know, I failed until I succeeded.
0: This uh, title, Unlock Your Potential, The Ultimate Guide for Creating Your Dream Life in the Modern World, suggests that we're both the locksmith and the thief. We're both in the business of maintaining the safe, and breaking into the safe how can we be both Jeff? uh
1: yeah we're, we're the the fox and the hen let's let's say um no i because because we create our own cage i i actually use the analogy a lot that and, and this maybe maybe sort of fractures the the central metaphor of the book unlocking your potential but the the the, the secret shh don't tell anyone the cage isn't actually locked most of us are sitting in a cage. And I remember once uh, going to Alcatraz. I've been to Alcatraz. You're up in San Francisco, right? So I'm sure you've done that tour, right? Yeah, I
0: walk past it every day. Well, yeah, I am so, uh, on the
1: bay. So yeah, I see it every day. You know how they let you, like if you do the tour of Alcatraz, you can actually go sit in the cells. So I remember sitting in the cells and I uh, was with my family and, and uh, me and I think it was, I don't remember which of my two sons was in there with me and we pulled the door shut. And just pulling the door shut, it's not like it clicked. It didn't latch. It didn't lock. But just pulling the door shut created this eerie feeling of entrapment, right? And and all of a sudden, we were like, we got to get out of here. We want to open the door. That's most people. They're they're sitting in this cage with this anxiety, not realizing they're the ones that pulled the door shut and it never even latched. You can leave at any time. And, and we've seen um you know i'm sure a lot of people have seen that metaphor or it's a very real thing like in the circus you see an elephant that's tied to like a little stick that's stuck in the ground you have some 8000 pound elephant that could literally yank that stick out without even thinking It, it wouldn't even feel it if it pulled the stick out of the ground but it doesn't because it's been trained that it's tethered and so it doesn't even try to get away and i think that's most people so the, the flaw, I think, in your thesis, or, or the way you described it, is that the gate isn't actually locked and we can leave any time.
0: Uh, there's a, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. Jeremy Bentham, the 19th century uh, social philosopher who invented the idea of the panopticon, which was a, a giant prison or uh, school or hospital where he imagined we'd all be watched. Uh, he saw it in a good way. Most of us, I think, find it rather chilling suggested that the, the best way to create a prison is not by locking doors, but by making it seem as if you were being watched all the time. People like Bentham would argue that's a good thing because it maintains social order. If everyone turned out like Jeff Lerner, the world would be chaotic. It would be anarchy, wouldn't it, Jeff?
1: Yeah, so I, I actually grapple with that sort of question quite a bit. And, and I do accept that it takes all kinds of to make the world go round. And interestingly, I I just got, um, I just ordered a book called Thinking in Bets uh, by Annie Duke, who's a poker champion, as one of my first books on a list that I'm using to delve into game theory, because I've actually been really interested in what you're talking about, which is like, who are all the different role players that it takes to make this grand game function, right? And there do need to be employees, and there do need to be worker bees, and there do need, be ditch diggers and they're, you know, do and so forth. Right. Um, but I, I look at it differently. I look at it and sort of the a priori, um, you know, insistences of civilization. Right. And I think that in the last few hundred years, and, and, and I'm not saying that there's ever been a time when it was perfect, but I think in the last few hundred years, there's been sort of this general insistence, you know, kind of post-industrial revolution that like, human beings were, you know, had a value that was just simply intrinsic to their mechanical strength and aptitude, right? Like we can pull levers, we can push buttons, we can move things around, and that's part of our intrinsic value. And I think that we live in an era where the world has sort of evolved beyond that, and that frankly, if everybody said, hey, I am insisting that my life includes all five levels of Maslow's hierarchy, like I refuse to live a life where I don't get to self-actualize. What would happen if there was this grand self-actualization revolution and eight billion people all said, I refuse to be just a a function in an equation or a part in a machine. I wanna matter and I wanna be self-expressed. I think it would be chaotic for a time, but I think a new consciousness and a new collective intelligence would emerge where we would say, okay, we have to put this thing back together in a way that doesn't sacrifice each other and I personally think we're at the point in human history where we could do it.
0: Jeff, you didn't need this book, unlock your potential, to unlock your potential. You say on Twitter that your mission is to help people unlock their full potential. Do they really need books if they can't unlock it on their own? Then are they likely to do it through a book like yours? Uh, I mean, I don't. I, I think they need. You know, human beings. Uh, we are. We have
1: not yet evolved we have not yet shed all of our tribal baggage. We need mentors, we need sanction, we need belonging. And
0: I think that this And that's book, a good, well, someone like Gigerenza would say that's a good thing. That's where we get our instincts from, from our collective memory. Yeah, and,
1: and I wouldn't disagree, but I th- the, the problem is that collective memory and even evolution itself, is a lagging indicator of the present state, right? In other words, if the environment changes, it might be many generations before we adapt to the changed environment. And I think we're at an interesting time in history where we are several generations behind adaptively. And I think that we we very much could reinvent this place, but no, but, but very few people, and this is the, the diffusion of innovation, right? You've got like the, the, you know, innovators, you've got the early adopters, you've got the laggards and right, like the big fat part of the bell curve, most people won't move until other people have moved. So this book is essentially, it's meant to be permission, guidance, and at least one person's story to make people feel like they aren't having to be the trailblazer that someone else has gone out and done it and also created frameworks to compress 27 years of my learning curve into hopefully a few years of yours,
0: or you know, at least as a starting point. However long it takes you to read the book. You're 90 minutes from Vegas, literally, Jeff. Perhaps symbolically or metaphorically too. I mean, can the world cope with eight billion people unlocking their potential? What about the environmental consequences, for example? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, I have a lot. I have a lot smaller carbon footprint than most people I
1: know because uh, I'm quite content. Staying at home. I don't really need to drive that much. I like to play music. I like to write. Uh, you know, I, I use digital devices. Um, I, I do like to travel and that's probably something I need to, to reconcile. But I, no, I think that the reality, if you look at, at you know, and, and the book covers a lot of this data. I mean, if you look at the evolution of industry that's forecasted over the next 10 to 50 years, Um, a lot of major industries are gonna disappear, right? So you say, oh, there's 8 billion people. The question is how many people does it take to to run the economy? And as long as humans are physically a part of the machine, it takes billions and billions of us to make the widgets, run the factories, deliver the services and so forth. But mechanization, automation, artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera, is making the vast majority of us unnecessary in terms of our muscles in terms of our strength right and so i actually think if we don't evolve into a society where the unlocking of potential the creativity the expression the manifestation the you know the the call it the touchy-feely side of life if that doesn't start to actually be prioritized we're going to end up with a lot of very bored very unemployed very malcontent people because they aren't needed in the physical economy and they haven't been taught how to, how to self-soothe through imagination and, and, and mental stimulation and we're gonna have to basically I, mean, I hate to sound you know sci-fi-ish but it's like it's gonna be like brave new world we're gonna have to dope them with drugs or video games or social media algorithms and by the way we're kind of already seeing it happen right so I, I not only think that it can be done I think it must be done or else
0: we're headed to a dark place Jeff, some people might be watching this and and thinking to themselves that that's true, but you're doping them with dreams. You uh, when you go to your website, uh, you have uh, you have this this stuff in bright red. Ever felt you were meant for more? A way Mm -hmm. of selling your services, your institute, your book. Um, There's free download uh, reveals my three-step shortcut system to custom design the perfect mobile business for your dream life in the next forty-eight hours. Some people might think, "Well, you're just you're just um, taking advantage of people who are lost." Particularly, I think men, young men, who seem particularly lost in our early twenty-first century economy. How, how would you respond to that kind of observation or criticism? Yeah, I would say that I I don't think that there's anything fundamentally wrong with
1: dreaming. If there were, we wouldn't all do it. We wouldn't have been created to do it. And especially, we wouldn't have been doing it the most when we were the most innocent and pure. I think we can all agree that the most innocent, most benevolent uh, version of ourselves was when we were children. And that was also the age at which we dreamt the most. So if we can directly correlate the amount that we dream to the positive energy that we, we you know we feel then i think it's fair to say dreaming is a good thing right so fast forward to adulthood and you know let's use I'll, I'll quote carl Jung, right he said you know every man lives a myth i don't believe that'll ever change nor should it i mean to your point about the social contract and you know so forth we couldn't function as a society if we didn't all create stories and act out those stories together in this sort of grand, you know, dramatic art that we call life. The question though is whose story, whose dream, and for whose benefit? And so I'm, yeah, I mean, am I selling a dream? Absolutely. but what I am selling is the idea that for finally, for the, maybe the first time since you were a child, You get to be the one to have the dream and decide the narrative and create the myth and live the story and shed the other people's dreams and the other people's stories that you've been conscripted into. So I proudly sell a dream. I just posit that maybe for the first time in your life, it gets to be your dream and not
0: someone else's for you. Jeff, you're certainly not the first or the last person to be selling dreams with your Unlock Your Potential, the ultimate guide for creating your dream life in the modern world. Had a number of guests on the show over the years. Doing it, I had Tim Ferriss, the author of uh, the Four Hour Work Week, one of the most successful writers and figures in this field. He came on talking about the fifteen minute uh, female orgasm, uh, trying to keep a straight face. Sadly, you and I will will never know about that. Yeah, well, certainly not publicly. Um, <laughs> I've also had Reed Hoffman, um, mm-hmm. again a very successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur and investor. Very uh, successful book as well, the startup of you. What do? What does your book un- unlock your potential, Jeff? What does it bring to this discussion? This shelf of books on self-realization that the the Ferrises and the Hoffmans and everyone else have ignored. What, what's original about unlock your potential?
1: I think it's the construction of the book itself. And I also think it's the moment in time in which it was created. And as of today, in which it, it, it's appeared um, in terms of the construction of the book, I, I would describe it as a braid of three fibers. And you could call them the macro, the micro and the personal. Um, and, and, I, and I did this very intentionally with the book. I wanted, first of all, to create the macro case for why we're at a unique inflection point in history. Where this is not only an option for people, I believe it's the preferred, if not even the required option for people going forward in the world. And that was that was not true 20 years ago when, when the four-hour work week was published. And it was not true, I want to say, maybe about 10 years ago when Reed Hoffman published his book. Um, it, it's true today. And and I'll be honest, I kind of got lucky because I started writing this book. I've been working on it for the last four years, and halfway through working on this book, the world's went nuts because of, you know, the C word, right? And that what that did is it accelerated all of the things that I was saying, hey, this is happening, this is happening. And in the book, I was making a pretty heavy case that this stuff is all happening because when I originally architected the book, COVID hadn't happened yet. And so by the time I was done with the book and the world had accelerated through that, you know, call it that dip, I, all these forces that I was you know, taking great pains to illustrate and prove and and sort of logically expound upon, they were all right out in the open thanks to what had just happened in the world. So so that's one of the threads. The next thread is, okay, what are the tactics? What What is the practical ways that I I operationalize what the book, you know, the concepts that the book is telling me to do? In other words, if I want to unplug from the matrix and go become an entrepreneur and leverage the digital economy or whatever, what are some examples of business models? What are some steps that I take, right? Like how do I, as, as much as possible, give you the paint by number steps. And, and there's no such thing as a one size fits all formula, but you know, how do, I, how do I make it very tactical? So that was the second thread. And then the third thread is the personal. What do I, what work do I need to do on myself internally? You know, call it the self-help part of the book. Who do I need to become, frankly, in order to be good enough to succeed in this crazy world, doing these crazy things? And those are the three threads. And I am not aware of another book that weaves all three of those together. And then I'm definitely not aware of a book that sort of makes this case inside the larger context of this inflection moment in history. And that really gives the economic, the cultural, the sociological, sort of more academic type support to why you need to do this. So I think I've just brought more together into one book maybe than those other guys did. And that's not to take anything away from them. I mean, nobody does more research than Tim Ferriss. But I think he focused Especially on the, on, oh, on the, the 15
0: minute female orgasm, right?
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think we can apl- applaud his commitment and probably understand his commitment <laughs> to that research. But um, but I, I think he focused on the personal and the micro. I'm not sure he brought in the macro. I think Reed probably focused on the macro and the micro, but maybe not as much on the personal. I think I brought all three together and I happened to do it at the right moment in time. Uh,
0: finally, Jeff, um are you an example of somebody who has indeed unlocked their potential? I mean, you seem to be in part, although I think you would recognize you haven't fully unlocked your potential. Is there a public figure or a writer or a politician, an artist, or an ordinary person who you think might be a model for achieving this? Yeah. So I
1: have a very, and, and the book goes into, into fairly heavy detail on this. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a 360 page book. It's not as big as Tim's, but it's pretty thorough. And I go pretty deep into my basic operating system for life. And and that's, I think a really important for any, if anybody's listening and they're like, well, I can't decide, do I wanna read this book or not? Like this is one of the promises I'll make you of this book is that it will give you an operating system that just like, you know, the main purpose of an operating system is to reduce the number of calculations and decisions. It's essentially to hard code as many pathways and formulas and sort of preset calculations so that every time you go to drag a file from a folder to a folder, that your, your system doesn't have to start from scratch on figuring out how to do that. It's essentially just running formulas that have already been coded, right? You will, That's how you want your life to be. When your life is as many predetermined formulas as possible that you can just execute in sequences based on the outcome that you want, you're able to do orders of magnitude more than the average person. And that's what, when I'm talking about unlocking your potential, I'm not talking about, doing a little more to get a little more. I'm talking about admittedly doing a little more. I mean, there's gonna be more raw effort required than I think most people are exerting. But when you couple it with the operating system and the frameworks and the, the, the sort of theorems that have been worked out in the book, you know, you might be able to put twice as much in to get 20 times as much out. And that's really what unlocking your potential is. And I think that there are there are a number of people, in fact, I think in general, there's a movement around human optimization. That's the, the, the reason I love entrepreneurship is, is because we're human performance and business performance become two sides of the same coin. And I think there's guys, you know, Tim Ferriss is a good one. I think there's guys that approach it more from the physical side, like say like a, a Dave Asprey. I think there's people that approach it from a neurological side, like a Tony Robbins or a John Asseroff. I think there's people that approach it from a, a business side, like, you know, I don't know naval or some of these sort of you know aphoristic business thinkers um but yeah i think that in general there's a there's a group of people that have decided and and it fundamentally comes down to this the precondition for greatness is saying no to most good things and that's what you see as the common thread when you find these people is that they're willing to expunge from their life a lot of things that most people accept as good and and then you fill that vacuum with this level of calculation and this level of effort that can unlock your greatness. And it's, it's, it's exponentially more than what most people settle for.
0: Well, there you have it. If you wanna unlock your greatness, you need to read Jeff's new book. It's out today, Unlock Your Potential, the ultimate guide for creating your dream life in the modern world. It's certainly an interest take. Jeff, is there a money back guarantee on the book if you don't realize your potential?
1: Uh, no, no, there's not. I, I think my, my publisher contract probably wouldn't allow that. But even if it did, I wouldn't give it. I, I will be right up front. And, and, and I say it in the early pages of the book. If you're looking for get rich quick, if you're looking for done for you, not only will you not find it in this book, you won't find it anywhere. Um, you know, value is a non zero sum game. I give not so that others may take but so that others may be inspired to give, and together we can create something greater than the sum of its parts, but I don't give so that others may take, and that's not how a book works either.
0: Fair point. Jeff, uh, as I said, your book is just out, Unlock Your Potential. What else are you reading these days? You clearly are a a keen reader. You like books.
1: I do. Uh, So I'm actually reading right now Lifespan uh, by David Sinclair, uh, who's a gerontological geneticist at Harvard, and it's all about uh, how to extend life. I am, I mentioned, I just ordered, um, thinking in bets by Annie Duke. I've been reading, I always get the name wrong principles for dealing with the changing world order by Ray Dalio. Uh, I, I, just had Robert green on my podcast. So I, I download, I downloaded the daily laws. Um, yeah, I love to read and I kind of bounce around But it's all based around this idea that the world is changing faster than we are, and, and I'm trying to keep up with the people that are at the bleeding edge and telling us what's happening.